and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today I'm meeting virtually with Caitlin Greenidge. Her novel, Liberty, was published in March. Caitlin, I just absolutely love this book, the story, and all the issues that it touches on. Thank you so much for coming on Read More again. Thank you so much for having me. This is Caitlin's second time on the show. She was with us back in 2016 to talk about her first novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman. If you haven't read that one, I highly recommend it. Her new novel takes place in Brooklyn, primarily during the Reconstruction era. Her protagonist is a girl named Liberty Sampson, who lives there with her mother, who is a doctor. Both of them were born free, but in many ways, Liberty doesn't feel that way. She feels pressure to follow in her mom's footsteps and go into medicine, but her heart lies elsewhere. And when a man from Haiti proposes to her, she thinks marrying him is her way out. But once in Haiti, she feels more stifled than ever. Caitlin, this novel was inspired by the life of Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, one of the first women in the one of the first black women in the United States to become a doctor. How did you come to learn her story and what was it about her story that made you decide to write a novel that touches on aspects of her life? Sure. So I first heard about her story when I was working at a place called the Weeksville Heritage Center, which is located in central Brooklyn in um, uh, Brooklyn, New York. And so Weeksville is a Black history museum dedicated to the history of this free Black community that was founded in central Brooklyn in 1838. Um, and it was founded essentially by uh, a group of black men who bought up this tract of land in an area that would have been considered really undesirable because it wasn't near the waterfront. If you can imagine, this was Brooklyn in the 19th century, so there's no subway, there's no even roads really cut out. It's mostly farmland and forest, and so they bought this tract of land, and then they divided it into smaller tracts, and then placed ads in black newspapers throughout the East Coast and up and down throughout the country, um, saying, "Come to Brooklyn and buy lots here. We will sell to um, heads of uh, colored men who are heads of their family." And they did this because they were trying to establish a black voting block in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, slavery ended in New York through gradual emancipation. And so there was, uh, and in New York at that time, there was a um, property requirement to be able to vote. So they, it was really strategic. They, they made these lots the exact sort of like minimum amount of land that you had to have to be able to get onto a voting roll. And they wanted to create this um, black political block. And so because of that, we still became this community that attracted a lot of abolitionists, um, anti-slavery people, really people who were interested in sort of building this Black community and thinking about what it would mean to live and establish uh, life as free Black people in the United States pre-Civil War. And then after the Civil War, it continued to flourish. And so I was worked at this museum and we were doing... Um, uh, interviews with descendants of people who lived in that community and who had founded it. And one of the descendants we spoke to was this woman named Ellen Holly. One of uh, her uh, ancestor, Sylvana Smith, had been one of the founders of Weeksville. He was the father of Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, who was the first Black female doctor in New York State. Um, and we had this inter, and Ellen Holly herself was very illustrious. She's an actress. She's the first Black woman on uh, daytime TV um, back in the 1960s and 70s. She was on One Life to Live. And she'd written this really wonderful history of her family called One Life. That's um, I, I, I recommend people if they're interested in, in learning more, reading that because she's a wonderful historian. And so 
we were having this conversation with her and, and I sort of expected it to be this conversation about how great her ancestors and, and relatives were, which it was, but she's also was like very um, able to put a lot of their lives into context. And so she told us the story about um, Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart's daughter named Anna, who had married the son of the Episcopal Archbishop of Haiti. She was sort of part of this black upper class um, that would have existed pre-Civil War and after the Civil War. She's at the forefront of these people who are trying to sort of be a part of what Du Bois calls the Talented Tenth. And yet she had this marriage and it, and it was really a terrible marriage. It was abusive. She sort of wrote all these letters home to her mother saying, I need to get out of it. Her mother eventually helped her escape. And when we spoke to Ellen Holly and she was talking about this part of her ancestor's story, she really framed it as what what type of courage and sense of character would, have, would it have taken to leave this abusive marriage in the um, early 1900s um, at a time when, uh, you know, the, that kind of language of understanding that dynamic um, didn't really exist for anyone, black or white. Um, and on top of it, that when you left, you were you lived in this community that had this whole narrative built around black excellence. And so to leave your marriage, um, you got she she did. She got letters um, uh, from her in-laws for the rest of her life saying, you have let down the entire black race, the entire project of black freedom, the entire project of black progress and excellence is ruined because you won't stay in this marriage because you broke it up, um, you know, a, a black family because you've left a black man behind. Um, and not only was that sort of just like her crazy in-laws saying that, but that was sort of the the thinking of the people who, she, who were in her milieu. Most of her probably friends and family thought that of her as well. But she broke up the marriage anyways with the support of her mother and um, moved to the US and never returned to Haiti, um, despite her really uh, awful marriage there. She still really loved that country very much and told her um, children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, um, how much Haiti was a huge sort of like part of her understanding of herself and how much she loved the country and how happy she had been there. So I just found that um, story really interesting. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I wasn't a novelist then, but I thought if I ever get a chance to write a novel, I would love to um, write one about all of this. Well, I guess that just shows that respectability politics is not new. No, it's not. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just found that so, um, you know, fascinating that um, from the moment we became sort of free, collectively free in this country, um, we sort of had this narrative of uh, respectability that um, sort of curtails freedoms for many of us, for both men and women in, in really specific ways. Throughout the novel, we see several characters struggling with the idea of what it means to be free. What does it mean for those who have escaped slavery, for those who have gained freedom after the Civil War, and for Black women in particular, who are so often held back because of our race and because of our gender? You know, those are questions we're still asking ourselves today. What drew you to write about this weighty topic of freedom and what it means? Yeah, I mean, I think we are at a moment in our country where that word is is both very meaningful and, and absolutely meaningless. You know, like um, we have everybody using that word, but it means drastically different things to different people. 
Um, and particularly when you're talking about black people and when you're talking about specifically black women, black women, that word freedom begin gets very conditional very, very quickly. And um, the things that, you know, other groups are um, sort of celebrated for doing as, as a sign of their freedom, when we as black women do it, you know, it's pathologized. Um, you know, it's um, the worst possible thing we can do. It's proof that we're unworthy. It's proof that we are too sexual. It's proof that we're unhealthy, that we're, um, you know, going to die early, that we're terrible mothers, terrible partners, terrible people. Um, so I just... I think freedom is is such an interesting um, uh, lens through which to look what, at, at particularly sort of our, our subjectivity as Black women. And even though we have sort of all those narratives laid upon us from all sides, from non-Black people, from white people, from Black men, from other Black women, you know, we just kind of get it from all sides. Um, we still are, a, as a group, sort of dedicated to finding freedom in all these amazing forms, whether it's through our artistic uh, achievements, whether it's through sort of, um, you know, our scholarship, whether it's through um, our athleticism, you know, we continually uh, um, break barriers in that way, despite sort of all these narratives laid upon us whenever we attempt to make movements into freedom. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking right now, as, as I sort of talk to you, we're in the news and, and you know, we hear about these Black women athletes like Serena Williams or, uh, you know, Naomi Osaka or S Simone Biles, sort of these people who break barriers and are literally, you know, like doing these, these um, beautiful expressions of freedom, you know, get punished for it and sort of told like you're way too out of bounds. So that struggle is like very real. I think it's like a, it's just a part of being a black woman. And, and from a narrative standpoint, as an artist, it's a really rich place to explore and to write about. Liberty's mom experiences a lot of this. Dr. Kathy Sampson, she seems to confuse a lot of the men who come into contact with her. She is a widow. She lives in a big house that belonged to her father. She has a lot of land and she runs a business without any help from a man. And a lot of people would say that for her time period and actually for now, even, you know, someone like that has it made, she's free. But you point out that during slavery, she was scared she could lose her daughter because no one would believe she was hers. Uh, in your story, Dr. Sampson is very, very light to the point where she can pass and her daughter is very dark. Mm -hmm. But we see this character, Dr. Sampson, who doesn't seem to have any real friends in the community. Uh, the men and women there sort of keep her at arm's length. Is her story some sort of commentary on the burden of being a successful Black woman? Um, I think it's more sort of her as an individual. She's She has sort of taken what the burden is of, of being um, an outlier of being a pioneer of being sort of the first black woman doctor anywhere sort of around her. And because of the type of person that she is, um, it causes her to put up these emotional walls that make it really difficult for her to, um, forge these deeper relationships and deeper friendships with people. Um, and, you know, like we see other women who are doing extraordinary things. Like she has a very close friend who is a, um, helping people escape from slavery and sort of runs her own business and has her own dressmaking stuff. And that woman is completely um, integrated into her community and, you know, is able to sort of um, forge friendships. But because of the way Dr. Sampson just is herself, she's not able to sort of get, break that reserve, that protective reserve that she sort of built up to be able to be 
um, the first of what she's doing. And I really wanted to explore that. You know, I, I, I have a background in oral history. I did a lot of oral histories when, um, and assisted in a lot of them when I was working at Weeksville. Um, and then I also, I, you know, I'm a, I am a writer, so I interview people a lot for things. One of the things that always really strikes me when I interview people who are pioneers in their field, especially Black women who are pioneers in our field, um, you know, or, or especially and Black people who are sort of the first in, a, in an all-white space, is that there often is that reserve when you try and get people to talk about how it felt emotionally. And that makes complete sense because to go there require, you know, is is making yourself vulnerable in a way that you literally could not be in order to survive the experiment experience and to get through it and, and to accomplish what you're going to accomplish. And so I wanted less sort of to, I wanted to sort of explore what the toll of um, being a first like that is on the interiority of a person, which I think we oftentimes overlook in the sort of um, celebratory, you know, they were the first to do X, Y, or Z. Well, as I mentioned, there's this big difference between Liberty and her mom in their colors, in their complexions. And you really take on colorism a lot in this novel. Um, obviously, colorism is something that's been around forever. But what really struck me about it in this book is how open and upfront everyone is about it. Um, there is a passage where one of the mom's friends says, Lord, your girl may be dark, but isn't she pretty? Mm -hmm. It's a shame she got her father's color. And it's not been my experience of people talking that openly about it. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, it's just, it really stood out. Um, now the mom, she came to her daughter's defense and said, you know, she's beautiful. She let it be known. She feels that she is beautiful without any kind of qualifiers like her friend tried to do. But we also see times where she takes advantage of her light complexion, where she uses it to pass to do things that she would like to do. Mm -hmm. So was this in any way part of the true story that inspired you? Or is this something that you added just to add um, another dimension to the story? Um, well, from the, the, the Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart herself was, um, light skinned and we know that she was, um, that sometimes people perceived her as white because that's allegedly how she was able to get into medical school. She always said she was never explicitly passing. She always gave her, um, actual address, which was Weeksville, clearly a free black community. Her argument was sort of like, they had to know I was black because that's where I came from. And I never lied about where I came from. But we do know that when she um, was going to graduate from that school, um, they they did not allow her to be a valedictorian because they figured out she was black. And then eventually they didn't want to be called racist. So they just made a white, a white girl co-valedictorian with her. Um, so uh, we know that sort of about her and that that's a part of her story. And her daughter's nickname was Peaches. So that tells us that her daughter probably was considered pretty light-skinned as, as well. Um, but I was so sort of struck when I was doing, um, so so to answer your question directly, um, for the historical part of it is that they were both light-skinned. It's not that um, they did not do not appear to have been um, either one of them dark-skinned. But what I was really sort of struck by when I was reading more about colorism, which, um, you know, there's a lot of novels about colorism. There's, no, uh, you know, there's a whole sub- genre of African-American fiction that's all about sort of passing or being led enough to pass or sort of like, what does that mean? Um, and what I was so fascinated by when I was sort of doing my research is um, uh, specifically, I guess, for this point is that, um, you know, people sort of as 
there was colorism as it was described in fiction and film, which was like this sort of tragic thing of like, you passed the color line and you never came back. And it was really tragic. Mulata is like, you know, that, that um, literary term for it. Um, but when you read people's diaries, especially people, um, lighter skinned people's diaries about it for the time, it's oftentimes written about very casually. Like they will mention, um, you know, I wanted to go to the theater and I didn't want to sit in the bad seats. So I just bought tickets as a white person. I walked in and I went and then I, I left and then I, you know, went home and, and saw my friends and family and sort of like, like went back to my home in the black part of town. Um, and it's very sort of matter of fact around stuff like that. And um, there's sort of knowledge of some people who may be passing for career life, but those people are still um, tangentially collect connected to a black community and the black community knows where those people are. So I think I think that sort of idea of like the color line as this um, uh, thing that um, I, you know, I think to me, what was interesting was that um, porousness around it and that casualness around it. And I wanted to sort of get that onto the page for the reader to sort of rethink some of these things of how we're thinking about um, color and how people experienced it. And, um, you know, I think there's, there is a, uh, uh, some stuff that um, when you're reading people's memoirs of the time period, that's very straightforward. Like, um, you know, uh, Charles W. Chestnut, who is a, a very, very light skinned um, author. He wrote a lot about sort of like passing and, and um, passing as white in the early 1900s, excuse me, early 1900s. I read his diaries and his diaries are all about falling in love with a, a dark skinned woman and um, not wanting to lead her on because he knows that his parents would never let her let him marry her because of her color, but being in love with her and trying to like like grappling with this, you know. Um, and it's very frank in his diaries. He's like very direct. He's like, you know, she's she's really dark skinned, and, and that's why I like her, and and I would love to marry her, but I can't, kind of thing. And so that kind of stuff I was super um, fascinated with because I think oftentimes when we hear sort of like the historical revision or we're talking to our elders about it, that stuff um, sometimes gets left out. Well, your very beautiful historical novel also includes some really enchanting moments of magical realism. As a child, we get to see Liberty develop a bit of an obsession with a woman whom she believes lives in the water and has special powers. The man Liberty marries is also fascinated with these stories and we see characters with special powers while she's in Haiti. Did you set out to write a novel with these supernatural elements or did that come to you in the middle of the writing process? Um, I think I sort of was always interested in including those into the novel. How I wanted it to read for the reader is that those things could be both supernatural and also um, could be um, just explained through the psychology of the characters. Um, and when I was writing it, I was reading, I was teaching a class on ghost stories um, on sort of like the literary history of it and, and how to write one. And I was really struck by um, sort of one theory of, of ghost stories, which is that they are always concerned with 
um, uh, crimes or, or trauma that's unspeakable, either like a family trauma that's unspeakable or, um, a, or a historic genocidal crime that's unspeakable. And so I really like that sort of idea of, of um, explanation of a certain part of um, supernatural or, or spiritual occurrences. And then I knew that the book was going to take place in Haiti. I knew that I wanted to explore parts of voodoo, but I didn't want it, of course, to sort of be what usually happens when people talk about Haiti and voodoo, which is um, to either sort of like get things wrong or, or really sort of like sensationalize it or um, sort of, you know, play up like the the sort of like magical, vengeful parts of it, which is when you read more about, you know, that spiritual practice, it's really all about, um, you know, it's, it, is a, it is a matter of healing for people. Um, one of the things that really broke open the book for me was I was reading a, um, a scholarly article by a person who sort of studies um, the modalities of voodoo and she was talking about it in terms of uh, it, it is used, the practices are used both to maintain balance for people and then also um, it's a healing practice. And the idea of sickness is that sickness comes when someone is out of step with their larger community, either a tie has been broken or they're going against their community or they've been sort of lost to what their, their place within the community. And that was a really sort of like beautiful way to think about health and wellness and sickness and loss, and then also how you restore those things um, in, in, a, in a way that's gonna be meaningful both to the individual and the larger community um, was really what drew me to it. Well, that's something you mentioned in your acknowledgements that you love the country of Haiti, but you were a little bit nervous about writing about it because you're not from there. Mm -hmm. um, how much research did it take for you to feel confident in writing about another country, another time period and even another field in writing about Dr. Sampson's work? Yeah, I mean, I I just sort of approached all of those questions with the viewpoint of liberty. So from a craft perspective, knowing that I'm writing from the point of view of a character who is an observer of many of those scenes. So she herself is not a doctor. She herself is not um, uh, like, professionally trained in homeopathy. She herself is not Haitian. She herself is, did not grow up in Haiti. Um, so she's an out, a perpetual outsider, which is a, uh, you know, just like a classic place to write a novel from. And she's an observer. And so we're really following her eyes. So if things are missing, it's because the character, um, you know, can be a little bit forgiven for not noticing sorts of things because um, we, hopefully the book is rooted enough in her point of view that you understand um, the things that she happens to be noticing or sort of recording in her in her um, memory and idea. I love so much that your novel includes queer characters uh, because it seems like so many times we like to act like gay people are new. You know, they just <laughs> popped up to you know a couple years ago. Yes. Uh, <laughs> why was it so important to you that they be represented? We see some minor characters who are gay in this novel and it's talked about, it's not, um, maybe they're not open, but there are characters who know this and it's not presented as a big deal to the people who find out. I find it so interesting um, when you actually sort of look at the historical record and you sort of see the various ways that people formed relationships in the past. Um, and part of this is based on sort of, again, research that I did. So 
Um, I was reading a, a lot, a big model for liberty and sort of, especially the the world that she encounters when she goes to this black college, a big model for that was um, Alice, the life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, who was this um, black woman writer uh, a little bit later from when this book is set. She was more active in the early 1900s and, and um, later during the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, but she has a great biography about her called um, Lyrics of Sunshine and Shadow, and then another great one called Women Poetry, Colored Women Poetry and Sex by, um, I'm going to forget who it is, but she's like a foremother of Black women's history. It's, it's great. Both of these are really juicy biographies, and I recommend people read them if they, if they like sort of those um, histories and stuff. I bring her up only because um, she wrote extensively about her life as a queer woman. She dated both men and women. Um, she dated both black male and female artists. Her most famous relationship was Paul, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who's of course a famous black poet, but she also um, sort of was in this milieu of uh, women loving women in um, sort of like the DC art scene, black art scene of the early 1900s. And again, she was really casual about writing about it. You know, she just sort of like mentioned so-and-so have set up house together or so-and-so is, you know, had a falling out or, you know, this girl, this woman sort of like was making advances at me, all this sort of stuff. And I love that um, casual stance to that because I think that's oftentimes forgotten. And I, I, um, you know, as a student of history, I'm so interested in the ways that, um, you know, behaviors or relationships or ways of living in the world that in one time period are just get a given and, and not really remarked upon in another time period become something to really, um, you know, either demonize or, or, um, or persecute. Um, and we forget that really easily. I think, I think it's, it's really easy to assume that, um, 2021 in our sort of understanding of the world has, is the way that it has always been. Um, and the fun thing about studying history is that that's not, um, necessarily the truth. I like the fact that Liberty's mom mentions this to her as she's getting ready to go off to college to say, you know, some girls do this when they are away at school, just because we hear that so much today, it becomes like a, a college thing. I, I don't, I may not be saying that exactly right, yep. but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. In the 19th century, there was a whole sort of like scare about, I mean, that's like the, the beginnings of this, of the scare of, around homosexuality and um, people beginning to think number one, that women could love other women like that. And number two, that there was something wrong with it is sort of like you have people noticing that these that um, women's colleges were opening up and girls would go away to them and they would have these sort of like really intense romantic like friendships some physical some not and uh people starting to get worried about this but you know the the worry about that was very sort of like slow moving over time as people sort of like got to know gather sort of more and more information um and i just i, I it was really fun to sort of in, include those parts in the book well, Caitlin, now I'd like to switch gears and just ask you a couple of questions about what you like to read. Mm -hmm. You know, we are still in the middle of a pandemic, but thanks to vaccines, a lot of things are opening up now. People are getting out more, uh, meeting friends. Um, if you had the chance now that things are opening up and you could meet up with any writer, living or dead tonight, just to go out and have dinner with, who would you choose and why? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, let me think about that one. Um, 
I think I would want to go with Kathleen Collins. Um, I don't think she would want to have dinner with me, but I would want to have dinner with her. Um, she's, you know, she's a writer who, um, you know, wrote short stories, but then also wrote films. Um, and she did the, um, you, you know, so I would like to just go out with her and sort of figure out her thinking on art and moving across mediums. Were there any writers that you had in mind as you were writing? Um, for me, as a reader, I know there were times when I thought about, well, this reminds me of some some of Toni Morrison's work. And there are other times I say, well, this kind of reminds me of Jane Austen. And I thought, oh, what a interesting combination. So I was wondering if there's any of that for you. Um. Yeah, I think I think I tried to sort of pick and choose from a bunch of different places that I I really enjoyed reading from. You know, Morrison comparisons are are lovely to hear, um, but really I was sort of trying to get at a. It, it was a tricky voice to get for Liberty because I wanted it to feel of the time period, but I also wanted it to feel um, you know really fresh and sort of immediate and not um, sort of stale or stayed, which can happen I think a lot in historical fiction. Well, what are you reading right now? Oh, um, right now I'm reading um, Asali Solomon's new book called uh, Days of Afriketi. I, mean, I think I'm going to be mispronouncing it. It comes out in the fall. It's really fun. I, I, I think you and, and your listeners would probably really enjoy it. It's a retelling of um, Mrs. Dalloway, but it's about these two women. Um, one of them is they're two black women in, in Philadelphia. They were friends in college and they haven't seen each other in 20 years. One of them is this, is the wife of a failed politician and she's running, she's throwing this dinner party sort of to as like a farewell to his campaign. Um, and then she crosses paths with this woman who she hasn't seen in, in since they were in college together. And it's about their lives and sort of how they've connected and not connected and all takes place in, in one day. Um, and it's a lot of fun to read and I, it comes out in the fall and I think um, you, you, you and your listeners will probably really enjoy it. That definitely sounds interesting. Um, are you at the point now where you're already working on something new or are you still going really hard in promotional mode for this novel? Um, promotional stuff for this novel is, is dying down, but I have a short story coming out in July. So promotional stuff is that for that is gearing up. It's with Scribd. Um, it's called Orgy. It's about, um, the, it's not a historical story at all. It's set last summer. So during the pandemic summer, um, and it's about going to a party during the pandemic summer and making sort of the decisions that you have to make to, to go to this, uh, outdoor party during, during the summer. Oh, that sounds juicy. I can't wait to read that. Uh, where can people find you online if they just want to keep up with what you're working on and where you might be doing? Uh, I guess we're still doing all virtual appearances, but where they can see you. Um, so I have a Substack called, uh, what it is I think I'm doing, um, that you can subscribe to that will have more posts now that book promotion is over. Um, and, I'm also write for um, Harper's Bazaar and New York Times on occasion. So I'm usually over there and you can always see that. And I'm on Twitter to um, where I usually sort of post new stuff that's written or appearances. Okay. Well, Caitlin Greenidge, thank you so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work. Thank you for having me. You can find out how to win a free copy of Liberty on our website, readmorepodcast.com. 
And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support Caitlin and the show through buying the book on our site. Please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together when our guest will be Patricia Engel. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.